Hello and welcome to the Grand Slam Tennis Podcast um, and welcome to a new series. talking about a unique character and story from the world of tennis, one that's sadly been forgotten. Nora gordon Clether helped to run Wimbledon and the All England Club for a quarter of a century. She joined the small backroom staff in 1922 and played host to the stars of tennis's interwar golden age. She would then steer the club through the war with a skeleton staff and finally oversee its magical peacetime return. In 1945, she became the first woman to run a Wimbledon Championships. Next week, Sally Bolton will take over as CEO of the All England Club and next year, hopefully, become the second. So actor and singer Sarah Tullamore is her great niece and is creating a TV series about Nora's life at Wimbledon, part based on her extraordinary autobiography, Wimbledon's Story. So today, Sarah joins us and we're going to talk about Nora, that book and lots more. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Finn. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> Pleasure. You, we, we find you in Paris, don't we? Uh, yes, at the moment, yes. I mean, I'm normally in between uh, London and Paris, but uh, with recent events, I haven't been able to get over to London, so I am actually in Paris at the moment. <laughs> um, but loud and clear coming across uh, Zoom talking to yeah. you today. <laughs> Excellent. And also, at the moment, embroiled in a, a struggle to get a ticket for the French Open, I'm told. Yes, but I, I managed to get one last week. Yeah, so I know at least that I'm going on Monday the 5th of October. It's going to be an all-time first, obviously, going to uh, Roland Garros in, in October. <laughs> but I'm, yes, I'm really looking forward to it because for every tennis fan, it's been terrible not to, to see any tennis this year, especially this, this summer season. French Open, Wimbledon, not sure about the, the US Open, so at least it's nice to go to the French Open in, in October. Yeah, excellent. And if you've got the first day, you hope you'll be seeing Rafa. Right. Um, I'm not on the first day. I've, I've got the the last day of the fourth round because oh, right. I always God, yes, it's I, I do it I do it on purpose to go that day because um, it's the last day where you can get the most matches in one day. But by by the time you get to the fourth round, you know you're always going to be seeing great players and potentially great matches. So so that is my strategy. I mean, if I can get tickets for any more matches, that's an added bonus, of course. But my strategy is always to go on the, uh, the fourth round days <laughs> and that's what I managed yeah. to do yes yeah well they call, call it Manic Monday at Wimbledon don't they and I'm sure Nora would have been particularly busy on fourth round Monday wouldn't she oh uh, she, would, she would have been uh, very busy but she would have been busy from the very first day and, and even before that because you know Wimbledon has always been a two-week tournament, although there have been a couple of times when there's been so much rain, it did turn into to three weeks. But in general, as we know, it's, it's two weeks. But it, it takes practically all year to, to organise that, that two-week tournament. And, you know, when 100 years ago, when my great-aunt started at the, uh, working at the All England Club, it, it was 
no different um, from it than it is today. Although they didn't have all the mod cons that people use today to make it such a fantastic tournament, you know. Imagine organizing Wimbledon nowadays without any computers. <laughs> the mind boggles. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, she's she in the book. She mentions the first electronic scoreboard, uh, and she's yes, yes. Which, which was a novelty, the first electronic scoreboard to be outside of the centre court so that people could actually have an idea of what was going on inside. That is just one of the details that she talks about in, in her book. And it's something that now to us is, is so obvious, but wasn't necessarily at the time. She, she saw um, a, lot of those, a lot of those innovations. So what made you want to create this series about Nora in particular? I guess there's probably loads of reasons. There, well, there, there are a few, and I, I, was, I was thinking about it earlier on. I, I think it's because I like a good story. Um, you know, whether, whether it's on TV, at the cinema, on stage, um, I, something that is interesting, fascinating, maybe unusual, captivates people. And I, I really do think that, that Nora's story, her life, and particularly her life in the 25 years that she worked at Wimbledon, encapsulates all of that. Um, and also the fact that despite everything she did and overseeing things in, in precisely the time where Wimbledon became the modern, the beginnings of the modern tournament that we know today, that despite all of that, she is not really known at all and that she has just become forgotten. And, and I think it's a bit of a shame. And I think I would like people to know about her, what she managed to achieve, particularly because it was such a, a game-changing time in every, in every sense of, of the phrase. And also because she was a woman working in, in, in a man's world. And I think even almost a century later, her story is still very relatable today. I think a lot of women and men too can understand what she went through and maybe even have similar experiences in their own lives today. So I think that's a, that's a lot of reasons why I wanted to talk about her. And of course, because it's a, it's a family story, so it's, it's, it's close to my heart. But I just think that it's a story that has so many elements that would interest people who'd never heard of her before. That's why I want to really get this, um, her story in this TV series out there. Yeah, excellent. I mean, it is, it is a fantastic story. And I just want to <laughs> ask you about the, the book first. Um, in 1947, then, she, she publishes the book. It's shortly after yes. she left Wimbledon. Uh, yes. The book's called Wimbledon's Story, as I mentioned. And I don't know, I want to ask you, what do you think it's kind of all about? And what kind of book is it? Because it's kind of an autobiography, but then it's also... I felt like it was a love letter to Wimbledon. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I can call it uh, an autobiography because it really does concern those 25 years that she, that she worked and, well, basically lived and breathed Wimbledon. Um, she talks a little bit about her, her childhood, not much. And then basically at the end, we stop when, when she leaves Wimbledon. So autobiogra autobiography, I'm not, I'm not sure. But I think love letter to Wimbledon is, 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 a really, is a really good phrase and I might have to steal that from you. <laughs> I, I think, I think, because it's very difficult for me to, um, 
speak for her. Um, sadly, she passed away two years before I was born. So, so I, I, I'm relying on things that other people in my family have told me, things that I have read. I, I think Wimbledon was extremely dear to her. Um, I think we'll probably talk a bit later in the interview about how she left Wimbledon. So I think there was a part of her maybe that just needed to express everything she felt about the club, about the place, the people she'd worked with, everything that she had seen. Also because she was there at such a pivotal moment, the, the interwar years. So I think I get the feeling that she just had a lot to say um, and, and, and needed to get it, get it all out there. There might be also the idea of getting something off, off her chest. But the thing is, is that I think she was a very classy lady. So if she was feeling anything beneath the surface, it, it's written in a very euphemistic way and so it's for us to read between the lines but I, I I do think that she wanted to express everything that she had had seen um, and experienced at Wimbledon um, during those 25 years she she brushed shoulders with all the the big players the big stars men and women of, of the day and so she was privy I think to to a lot of Oh, interesting moments, funny, unusual anecdotes, uh, things, things that happened that, yes, only, only let's say, a, a privileged few, were, um, of which she was a part, were, were, were able to see. And, of course, she does write a lot about that um, in, the, in, in the book. So before we kind of get into the time at Wimbledon, we better just, you better just tell us more about Nora, I guess, from what you know. Um, what was her background? What was her kind of personality like, I guess? Um, well, Nora, so Nora is my great aunt on my, on my dad's side. So she was born, actually, I've, I've got conflicting information because I've got some documents that say 1901, 1902, but basically she was, she was born at the, um, the turn of the, the 20th century in, in London. She was actually part of um, six brothers and sisters. She was number three in, in the list. Uh, so she had, there were two older siblings, then there was her and there were three younger siblings. She, from what I gather, um, she came from, a, I would say it was solid, middle class family. Her father, so my great grandfather, Edward Gordon Clever, was um, quite an established um, actor and singer. Uh, on, on stage. His professional name was actually just Gordon Clever. He, he, he did so many things. He was part of the, the Doily Cart uh, touring company, for, for example. But he was um, posted to Dublin at one stage. He'd done his studies at the, the, the Royal Academy of Music in London, and he got a post as director of singing studies um, at the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Uh, he went there in the 1890s. He met his wife there because her parents were 
singing uh, singers and moved in that in that world. So they they actually lived in Dublin for a while before coming back to England at the beginning of the 20th century because I think the pull of London and what was going on there musically and artistically was was finally too strong. So the reason why I'm saying that is that Nora grew up in a very very artistic household. I think even for the time, maybe a bit bohemian. But what was, um, I think, interesting is that as well as the musical side of things, the artistic side of things, there was also sport. From what I can gather, um, her father, Edward, so my great-grandfather, he was, (laughs) to be honest, one of those annoying people who seems to be just good at everything. (laughs) So he was this this tall, handsome man who was a a brilliant singer and actor. Um, He was a great bridge player, and he was also a very good tennis player, and he was a member of the All England Club. And in my research, I have actually found mention of my uh, great-grandfather as one of the crack players. That's a a term they used at the beginning of the 20th century to describe who was, you know, the the upper echelons of the good players at the time, and they were called cracks. And and apparently my great-grandfather was was one of these. So maybe that is why he was was able to be a member of of the All England Club. So suffice it to say, I think um, that the sporting element of things came out in Nora. That she has another sister called called Brenda, who has an equally illustrious life. I mean, I could I could write a, a series about Brenda. Although having said that, she is in the series I'm I'm writing about. She was she was an actress on the stage. She worked for the BBC, so she did a lot more artistic stuff. Nora seemed to get the the sporty side of things and she just loved tennis from a a very young age and I think that was obviously due to her father's influence and so because he realized that she liked tennis he took her um, to Wimbledon when she was a, a teenager this is when Wimbledon was at its original site at the Warple Road site in, in Wimbledon, which I believe now is maybe part of Wimbledon High Girls School. Uh, that was where the original club was, and that was the first time Nora ever went to uh, the club in about 1917. Um, and then she got her first job in at Roehampton, so that was another sporting club. So, so she was, let's say, in the sporting um, atmosphere. But what was interesting, and this comes across very clearly in the book that she wrote, is that she was so upset at having to work at the weekends at um, Roehampton Club, which meant that she couldn't go and see the action at Wimbledon, that one day she thought, I, can't, I, I, have, to, I have to give up my job because I, I can't go and see Wimbledon. And this is, this is really distressing me. Um, she was lucky in that at Wimbledon, at, sorry, at Roehampton, she worked with uh, a man called Dudley Larkham, Major Dudley Larkham, and, and, and Major Larkham also worked at Wimbledon. And one thing led to another, and a bit later on, he, he got in touch with, with Nora, from what I gather, because he realized how much she loved Wimbledon. And he more or less said to her, would you just like to come and give us a hand at Wimbledon? That, that is really how, how it started. So I, I, I think she couldn't really believe her luck that somehow she was now beginning to work at Wimbledon. She had no idea what she was going to be doing, but just the fact that it was Wimbledon, she said, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. That was precisely the time when they had decided to move premises 
from the old site at Warpole Road to the new site in Church Road uh, between 1921 and 1922, which is exactly when she joined. And that also, for me, is why her story is so pivotal, because precisely at the time that Wimbledon changes sites, and in a way you can say enters the modern age, that is when Nora joins the, um, the staff at Wimbledon. So, so I think it's a very, it's, it, even her, the way she starts at Wimbledon is very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it comes across in the book really strongly, doesn't she? She yes. visits in 1917, that's where the book starts, as a schoolgirl, mm. and she's kind of instructed yes. by, I love this phrase she uses, she describes it as a vicarage garden party, doesn't she? Yes, so, yes. I think, I because I, I honestly think that's what the Wimbledon championships at the time were. It, it, it was, It was a very, it still had that Victorian English summer garden party style to it. It was quite tranquil and people went to be looked at themselves as much as to watch the tennis. It was all, you know, and then, and then everything changed after the first world war with the move. And particularly because of, of Suzanne Longlen who, who, who changed the way things happened. And I think catapulted the, the tournament into the let's say the first stages of the modern era yeah tell us a bit more about long because she does she does seem to embody the shift doesn't she in a way she's because um nora describes it as changing from a leisurely national pastime at lawn tennis that is to a kind of international battleground and long lens yes the kind of the the front of the rank of new continental players because in the first championships post-war, there's not a single British winner, and that was unthinkable before, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, it, you're you're right. Suzanne Longlen does embody that that shift. People had had heard about her before because she actually won, if I remember correctly, she won the uh, she won the the French Open. I think before before it was called the French Open, but the equivalent uh, at the time. She was very young. People had heard about this uh, pro- prodigious young player on on the other side of, of the channel. So they were very very excited when the war ended and she was she was able to to, to come over to Wimbledon for the first time, and the, the the women's final so this is in 1919 which was the first championship after the the first world war was basically pitting the old order against the new because it was against um uh, mrs lambert chambers who well, before she was married she was miss douglas i think she had won it i don't know how many times up until then she was yeah about seven times i think yeah. she was the established order and and Suzanne arrived and, and basically everyone was saying, can Suzanne beat Mrs. Lambert Chambers? And and it was quite a hard fought out battle. And and people thought that the old order was going to uh, preside over the new. And then at the last minute, Suzanne managed to pull through and she and she won. And and that really that was the beginning of this of this new of this new shift. Um, not only as far as uh, the game itself was concerned, but fashion. People were oh, people were very surprised to see Suzanne prancing around on the court in a very flimsy dress that was only three quarter length. Because up until that point, women still their their attire was still 
quite Victorian. You know, they wore long skirts. I think they wore underskirts, boots, gloves, hats. I mean, <laughs> thinking about it now, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how they did that. <laughs> so, so, so Suzanne really changed um, so, so, so many things, and and did become the the undisputed queen of, of Wimbledon for for, for the next uh, the next few years. And Nora saw this 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 player um, up close and I, and I think was able to uh, establish quite a, a, a nice relationship with her and that's why she's able to talk about her in such detail in in her book yeah I just wonder in, in the way she talks about her in the book it's almost as a kind of tragic figure isn't it long length she does have quite a tragic life doesn't she she dies young of course after a kind of exhaustive career in the game, doesn't she? And I just wonder whether yeah. you think Nora saw a bit of herself maybe in in Longland. In this, she has this passage where she talks about Longland as sacrificing kind of her personal life for tennis. I'm not sure if Nora's life might work on the same lines or she's kind of seeing a, an embattled woman in a man's world as well in Longland, isn't she? Yeah, I'm, I, it's, it's very difficult for, for, for me to say. Um, I, I think the analogy you draw is, is quite interesting because it's true that, that, that Nora was working in a man's world. She, there were things that she came up against and, and had, to, had to get past. Um, I think sometimes she did sacrifice her, her own personal life whether it's her family or her love life because of the, the job that she had to do um, in Wimbledon. I'm not sure if she sees herself exactly as, as Suzanne because Suzanne was, um, she was a very, well, she was a brilliant player. She, she, she was talented and she was vivacious. She was very charismatic, had a lot of charm with um, people around her, especially with the press, journalists. But she was, she was very highly strung. She was very nervous. She had been, I mean, she liked tennis and she had um, talent, and, but she'd been worked very, very hard from a young age. She'd been drilled by her parents, if I remember correctly, on the uh, southern French coast, on the Riviera, that's where that's where she trained. N Nora realizes this this aspect of of Suzanne's personality. So I don't. I, I think probably the comparison stops there. Um, but I think because she saw her up close, she was able to establish this um, relationship with Suzanne, and because she knew her personality was like that, she knew maybe how to work her way around it to to always let's say get the best out of Suzanne there there are there are quite a few <laughs> funny anecdotes in in the book that I'm that I'm not going to give away all of them but there is one that I think is great and that we have actually put it in our in our pilot script and it's it's one of the scenes in the pilot script that I I actually I love because I think it just sums up their relationship and um, and and the two women um, so well um, but it is true that Nora does say in her book that when Suzanne finally does turn professional because of course in those days that was the only way a tennis player could earn money by turning professional um, she does say oh finally I can enjoy my tennis which which does make you think that goodness you know when she was training and doing all these uh, tournaments grand slam tournaments she didn't actually enjoy it because 
it, it maybe it was just too too rigorous, too punishing a schedule. Maybe there was too much pressure on her shoulders as as this fantastic female player. And once she had left all that behind and turned professional and actually got paid for her tennis, then she could finally relax and and actually enjoy what she was doing. It's just fascinating to to get such a giant of the game viewed through such a personal lens like Nora's really, you know, because yes. you do see a completely different side of it. And I, what I find really striking is the intimacy Nora has, seems to have from having read the book, for me anyway. Yes, and, and I think well, for me, what comes across is that you can say, yes, she worked at Wimbledon um, for 25 years, she saw all these fabulous people, but it, it was a curious mixture of, of privilege and mundanity because she rubbed shoulders with, um, let's say, all the famous people who came to watch the, 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 the championships. And then, of course, all the famous players and making sure everything was, 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 was fine for them. But she also had to deal with, with, with temperamental players and people and situations and, and, and organizing goodness knows how many types of ticket for, for, for Wimbledon, because as I said, they didn't have computers back in those days and, and, and spectators writing in with, with silly suggestions as to how to improve the, <laughs> the tournament. So there was, there was always so much going on. And, and, and one thing that does come across to me is just how she had to, she had to juggle this balance of, 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 of an extremely glamorous and, and privileged world with, with quite boring, mundane, everyday tasks. I don't think it's easy to, to get that balance, but I get the feeling that she managed to get it quite, quite right. She sees the grace, doesn't she? But she also sees the off-court kind of exhaustion of the players, doesn't she? Often emotional exhaustion. Like there's yes. so many striking tableaus, isn't there, of Helen Wills, the who's called the little little poker face, sobbing yes. dressing room after losing to McCain, or or when Wills yes. and Helen Jacobs meet in the corridor and everything goes quiet. I mean, for a for a dramatist like yourself or a scriptwriter, it it's such a rich mine, isn't it? I bet. Oh, it's 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 amazing. There are there are so many instances that that she describes in the book. So many situations, anecdotes, it, 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 I think it really lends itself well to, to a drama series because it's, I, I want to make it clear that I'm not making a documentary of my um, great aunt's life or just putting her, you know, setting her book, making her book into a, a TV series. I, I feel that this can be a very good scripted drama fictional drama series but the and we use characters and we create situations and everything that that great drama has so we can talk about tennis we can talk about sport we can talk about um society in 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 great britain and europe at the time fashions uh societal changes um women working all, all of that all of that um but using all of the information that, that um, Nora has given us in, in her book that, that is so interesting and, and that I would say most people don't, don't know about. There's a, an amazing passage, isn't there, describing Fred Perry's final moment on Sense Court. It goes something like this. Fred loved Wimbledon. Probably his saddest moment came at the finish of the Davis Cup Challenge Round in 1936. As we stood there, 
when play was over and all the crowds had gone home, he said wistfully, let me stay here a moment by myself. He remained on the court alone, the court where he had made himself a world famous figure, silently contemplating the deserted stands and the emerald lawn. Fred knew then that he would never play again at Wimbledon. Afterwards, he went on to win his third championship of the United States, and then he too turned professional. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. So what, what was exactly Nora's role then, as well as being this kind of playing host to the champions in a way? What else was she doing apart from handling the really complicated ticketing system as well? <laughs> well, the thing is, is that I, I've, I've never had a, a precise job description um, of, of what she did, um, especially at the beginning. They literally, D- D- Major Dudley Larkham telephoned her and, and really did say, would you come to Wimbledon to give us a hand? Wimbledon, as well as being a, a Grand Slam um, tournament for two weeks, is, is also a tennis club. So, so there, there is that side of things to run as well. So I, I imagine at the, at the beginning, she was, she was just doing, she was doing a bit of both. Um, and then when they knew that they were going to be moving sites, moving premises, then I think probably things got a bit more urgent and she was, she was helping out getting everything ready for the 1922 championships. So I think then she started working more on the championships and probably more closely with Major Larkham, who was the tournament director at the time. From what I can gather, she was a, you know, she was a hard, she was glamorous, but she was a hard worker and she, she, she worked her, she worked her way up. So she basically probably became number, number two uh, to, to Major Dudley Larkham. And then she had staff working, working for her. So I, I think it was just a case of working, working hard and, and, and working her way up. When the war broke out and, 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 and Major Larkham was, in, was in, in, bad, in bad health, then in fact, she was, she was left. And so by that time she had been there quite a while. And so she knew what to do. So she just carried on. <laughs> <laughs> organizing everything on her own and more right because it turns into a completely different club doesn't it i mean for, for the war it becomes a, a kind of base medical facility parade ground a farmyard yes it becomes everything except uh, a tennis club although having said that the the troops who were stationed there were allowed to play uh, tennis on 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 the courts from time to time i think probably just to to let off steam and and you know think about something else but yes to to all in, intents and purposes wimbledon was completely transformed during the during the war years in more ways than one because obviously at the beginning it was nurses moving in, Red Cross, St. John's Ambulance. Um, then it became a parade ground. So I believe it was the, the London Irish and the London Welsh regiments that, that, that moved in. It, there, there, was, there was so much going on. Um, car parks were ploughed up uh, to grow crops to help the war effort. It was Nora's idea to bring in animals. <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, the two pigs that, that, that they 
welcomed at Wimbledon were called um, Jenny and Joey. They made uh, the headlines in the papers of the day because they thought it was quite hilarious that two pigs should, should take up residency at, at, at Wimbledon. Um, so, of course, from that point of view, the, the, the club was completely transformed. And then it was transformed also because, very sadly, it was bombed. And I don't think many people know that Wimbledon was bombed about, I think, 16 times during during the war and, and you know, and particularly Centre Court, um, which suffered quite a lot of bomb damage. Also, Nora, she was living in Earl's Court at the time, I believe, and one day she went home to find out that her own flat had been bombed. So she was bombed out and there was one unrequisitioned little room left in Wimbledon so she actually moved in there so so she was <laughs> she was at Wimbledon night and day during the war because she had nowhere else to go so she lived there and she was also overseeing everything else um, on, on a day-to-day basis during the, the war years um, I think there were very few people left all the men had been drafted off so she really, really did did um, run the show there for six years. And just before that chapter where she talks about Wimbledon and War, she says that she talks about finals day as, uh, as being ever different, never changing. It seems to hold the secret of eternal time. But like you say, Wimbledon suddenly became a fragile place, didn't it, during the war? Um, it, it did, and it's quite amazing to, to think that you know the 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 final is always what well, at the be- at the beginning of July, and it was already at the end of August that all the nurses, ambulance staff, Red Cross people started started moving in. So that was very very soon after that that um, the championships of 1939, and I get the feeling from reading that that chapter in the book that it, it, it it's not a it's not a criticism, but. It's almost as if she's a bit indignant that, and the rest of the staff are a bit indignant that, oh goodness, you know, what's happening to, to our club? It's being taken over. All these people are, are walking in and taking up residency on these hallowed grounds of, of tennis. But I think it was also because it all happened so quickly and the realization of war hadn't yet sunk in. Sadly, of course, it sank in very quickly. And so she just had to, to adapt to the, um, to the situation, to the new environment. So ever the trooper that she was, she, she just got on with it. And, and as I said, had all these ideas about what to do um, for the war efforts, you know, growing crops and keeping animals and, <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> and then in 1945, finally, Wimbledon, reopens doesn't it it opens it for spectators again anyway and and that summer talk about what Nora's kind of doing for the club she's there's three different events isn't there technically 1945 is not considered the first Grand Slam tournament at Wimbledon after the war it's 1946 but yes in 1945 they they did organize um i guess what you can yes you can organize a tournament um which was played with the allied the allied forces the you know for vic- for for the, the i guess the allied victory forces is what is what they were called and uh, what what are the other two um events that you're referring to in, in the book she talks about um there's an initial doubles match i think that she talks about 
and there's a photograph of it. And then I can't remember what the second event is, but the third event is the American forces. Maybe that's the one. Yes. Yes. That's, that's, that, that's the one I'm talking about the American forces, because I think that was the, the biggest one. Um, also as well, because the, a lot of the Americans had maybe lighter war experiences than, than, than other nations. And so they were still able to, um, to practice uh, a, a little bit. So it was easier for the Americans to, to start playing tennis again in 1945 than it was for, for other countries. Um, but as I said, this is, it's not considered an official Grand Slam tournament, but yes, technically this, this, this first tournament with the, with the American forces is when Wimbledon reopened uh, after the war. It wasn't played on center court because center court was still bombed out. So they had to do it on number one court. I presume they probably had a, a limited amount of spectators that they could let in because of the, the war damage. There were a lot of areas in, in, in the, um, let's say in the overall grounds that could not, couldn't be opened up straight away to people because it, it was also recent. There was still traces of, of Wimbledon, Wimbledon's activity during the war. They hadn't had time to, to, to do things up, but they managed. And as I said, this was all overseen by, by Nora. They managed to get some semblance of order together on number one court and around number one court so that, that matches could be played and, and that spectators could come in. And, and I, I get the feeling for her as well that it was very important to do this because it was like a, a symbol of, well, basically of good triumphing over evil uh, after six long years of, of, of war and the fact that people could, could play tennis again do something that everybody loves, something that's joyful, was was very was very important to her. Yeah, she talks about the. Uh, there's a chapter called Wimbledon the swastika, isn't there? Before yes. before the war, it's talking about um, the German Davis Cup match against America, right? And she Nora kind of is ever fascinated by player personalities, and she seems to capture these moments isn't she in her mind's eye and one of them is uh Gottfried van Kram I think it is looking at the sports Führer during the match when they're losing tell us a bit more about von Kram because he's a fascinating figure in himself isn't he and I, I realize you're wanting to incorporate him into the series a little bit right Yes, I think he, he's a very interesting figure from what I have, what I have read, um, what, I have, what I have researched. He will probably be in the, what I consider to be our, our second series, which will take place in the, in, in the 1930s. Um, he was, he, first of all, he was a, he was a very good player. Um, from what I gather, he, he came to prominence more in, in, in England, at Wimbledon anyway, um, more as part of the doubles team because he played with uh, a, a, a German, a female German player called Hilda Kravinkel, if I remember correctly. And she was a very long, lanky, gangly, uh, a very tall German uh, player. I think everybody nicknamed her the spider because she was just all over, all over the court. And they, they were quite successful uh, together. So that's how he came to prominence. And, and I get the feeling that he was, he was really liked by, by the crowds, and um, particularly by the um, American crowds. 
Um, his, his, his problem, from what I gather, was, was twofold because he just happened to embody, to personify the, the Aryan ideal that was being put forth um, by the Nazis and their, and their propaganda. You know, he, he, he was fair-skinned, he was blonde, he was blue-eyed, he was good-looking, he, he, he was athletic, he, he personified everything that they were trying to, to get across. But he, he refused to be used um, by, um, by the Nazis for, for their, their propaganda, which made life a bit difficult for him um, from time to time, from what I gather. And as you say... Yes, it's the, the Sportsreichsführer who, who used to watch the, the matches of the German team. And, and basically, you could feel that their fate would be different whether they won or, or, or lost the match. So, so I think they, there was a lot of um, probably angst at, for, for, these, for these German players at the time, not knowing whether the powers that be at the time would be lenient with them or not. So that, that was the first thing. The second thing is that um, he, he also had engaged in, in, in homosexual activity. I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's, they talk about this, but he was also married. I don't know at this stage if he, he was married a few times just to, to cover up the fact that he was gay or whether he was bisexual, I don't know. But he, he was found out uh, for, for uh, homosexual uh, activities and, and, and I, because of that, briefly uh, flung in jail, I think, in about 1938. But by that time, he was, you know, he was, he was a very well-known player. And, and I think the, especially the Americans, they were so outraged as, as to what had, had happened to him that there was a, a, a movement by a, a, a lot of well-known players to get him out of jail, which, um, which worked. So it, 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 it shows just how tenuous things were for the German players themselves during those, let's say, pre-war years when, when, when the Nazi machine and, and propaganda was, um, was gathering momentum. So, so I think he's a, very, he's a very interesting character and that's why I want to include him in, in the second series. I, I also get the feeling, um, this is another reason why I want to include him, that <laughs> from, from reading the book, I, I'm not sure whether, whether Nora really appreciated a lot of the, the German players. She found them quite quite difficult to, to get on with. Um, but I get the feeling that she did like um, Gottfried von Kram. She, she, she's always very uh, complimentary when she, when she writes about him. And I think also maybe she feels a little bit sorry for him because the poor guy, he was a, he was a great player and he was in the Wimbledon's uh, men's singles final three years running and lost three times, uh, once against... Um, uh, Fred Perry, and then twice, I think, against Donald Budge. It was Donald Budge who wrote a, a letter to Hitler, apparently, when he was put in jail. I think Donald Budge was instrumental, like you say. In I, yes, I think you're right. But it, all, this whole episode just just shows what a what a how tenuous it was, and what a fine line these poor German players were, were were treading, were walking on in 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 the mid in the mid thirties. I mean, no no wonder 
Nora found them a bit a bit trying because they were they were probably under extreme tension and didn't really quite know how to, how to, to to behave for fear of putting a foot wrong. So yes, you know, so Nora had had to deal with all kinds of of, of different situations. She she probably had to be extremely diplomatic the whole time that she was there to to make sure that she could sort things out um, for for different players and sometimes in extreme situations. So jumping forward again, after 1945 and that summer and the return of tennis to the hallowed lawns of of the the All England Club, her work isn't rewarded essentially, is it? They, they, They bring in a male manager to work alongside her, they say, don't they? And basically that drives her out of the All England Club. Tell, tell us what happened. Well, yes, it's, it's none of this, of course, is, is written in her book because, as I said, she was, she was quite a classy lady and probably wasn't the kind of person to wash her dirty linen in, 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 in public. But I think it was also just a, a sign of the times as well. You, you kept that stuff for your for yourself and so that's why her departure at the end of the book is written in quite euphemistic terms so everything i've i'm going to say now is 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 stuff that i have found out by talking to people in my family things that have been passed down anecdotes things Uh, but i am pretty confident in 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 when i say that yes basically um as things got back to normal after uh, at the end of the, 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 the war and the fact that she organized the, the, the tournament in 1945. Um, I, I think she fully expected to, to continue. Um, but again, as, as after the first world war, after the second world war, she could feel that there was a change. There was a, there was a shift. Um, and she, as you say, she was told that a, a male manager would be coming along to, alongside to, to work with her, which I think must have been a little bit surprising because she had already been there for 25 years. She'd run Wimbledon single-handedly for the six years of the war, and she'd just organized single-handedly, more or less, the, the, the first, let's say, tournament of, after the war. But she accepted this graciously and said, okay, well, you know, if, if somebody else is going to be working with me, we'll, we'll work together. Um, but then she found out, again, I don't know exactly how, I don't know if she was told directly or if she happened to find out that the man in question, were, well, she wasn't going to be paid the same salary as, as, as the man in question for the same job. Um, again, she had already been there and had all this experience, and yet the man who was just arriving was going to be paid more than her. So naturally, she was not happy about this and um, went to see the powers that be and basically said, well, you know, can, can, I, can we at least have the same salary? Which I think is very understandable, but also quite pioneering for the, for the time. And... Uh, from what I gather now this I don't want to speak badly of, of Wimbledon here because obviously this is something that that happened back back in the day but I have to relate the fact because this is what happened I you know they they told her quite brutally that that was not going to happen so she either had to accept the status quo or do some or do something else and and so that is why she that is why she decided to leave 
which again, I think is quite a, a courageous and, and, and pioneering thing to do. I think she probably was sad and, and disappointed. Maybe she thought, okay, you know what? I've done 25 years here. This is great. And I can go on to, to pastures, pastures new, whatever those new pastures will be. But I, I, I do feel deep down, knowing what I know about her now with all the research I've been doing, that she, she must have been disappointed not to have been rewarded a bit more for all the work that she had done and particularly for keeping Wimbledon going more or less single-handedly during the war. So, yes, so she left and got a new job doing something completely different uh, in, uh, in New York. And she, she stayed more or less in the States until the end of, end of, um, the end of her life. Um, I think that's probably the reason why her name and everything she's done has kind of fallen a bit by the wayside because she, you know, the new job she was doing, I think she was working for a sorority of one of the Catholic universities in, in, um, in, in New York. So that's totally different from Wimbledon and obviously a lot less glamorous uh, compared to the circles that she moved in when she was at Wimbledon. And also it was just far away. Her name beca- became a bit forgotten and people at Wimbledon, well, obviously it was, you know, um, again, going into a maybe phase two of the modern era of the tournament after the Second World War. So pe- they had other, other ideas, other priorities. So sadly, her, her name um, became gradually forgotten, even though she did write this book. I think maybe that is also another reason why she wrote this book, because I think maybe subconsciously she wanted her name to be somewhere. She wanted to leave her mark. I, I, I have to say I was quite impressed because I was staying with an older family member on my dad's side uh, a few years ago. And he actually was a fountain of knowledge. He told me a lot of interesting information about Nora. And he is the guardian of scrapbooks that she made about herself. That I can't remember how many there are now, maybe about at least three. And it's full of cuttings to do with Wimbledon, but mainly to do with her. Now, you could say that that's a bit um, self-important, but I I also think it's just uh, another way that shows that she she wanted to leave her mark and maybe show what what she had done and you know and maybe why not she was just a little bit proud of what of what she had what she had achieved and i also get the feeling that she was very well liked and well respected by the press i i, I mean it's impossible it was impossible for me at the time to to read everything because there was just so much in there but just just flicking through and reading a few bits and pieces here and there I, I really got the impression that they, they, they liked her. And just, you know, to, to get back to what we were talking about before with her departure, the press were very surprised at when she left. And there were lots of headlines basically saying, you know, Nora Gordon-Clever leaving Wimbledon. There was a lot of consternation. But as I said, ever the lady, she never really, she never gave the, the, the real reason why. So she was always so, a visible public figure then, even yes, she well she 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 tur- let's say she turned into it because yeah. um, 
I, I, I don't know if you read the the article about her that appeared on the the Guardian and the Observer, and in it she was described as a oh, a classy socialite or or something like that. And I, I understand the description, but I don't think it's totally true because it's not like that's what she was in life already before she went to work at Wimbledon. She, as I said, she came from a good, uh, uh, solid middle-class family, very artistic, a bit bohemian around the edges, knew a lot of people. So yes, maybe she did move in, in good circles, but she wasn't necessarily a professional socialite. She, she went to work in Wimbledon. I mean, women had only just got the vote in 1918. It wasn't a very... Uh, it wasn't usual for all women to be working and certainly maybe not women in those classes. But she she went, she worked. Um, and as I said, she worked her way up. And because she she proved herself and made her mark, of course, that's how she was then able to move in these in these circles. And she was more and more present in 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 these circles and so that's why the press saw her and photographed her but do you see what i mean it was it was a it was a gradual it's a gradual process and i think she earned the respect of the press by 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 working so hard and and doing so much for the club but also you know presenting well and being and being quite glamorous as well so all of that to say 25 years later when she suddenly left they were they were very very surprised and 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 quite sad and everybody was wondering why and she never, ever said. Incredible, incredible. I, yeah. I quickly <laughs> want to touch on her thoughts about, her kind of prophetic thoughts about the professionalization of the game, if you can get my words out. Um, yes. She, she calls players enforced amateur status as absolute hypocrisy. She doesn't mince her words on that point. No, she? no. Um, She'd sadly never see the open era, of course. What, what do you think she'd make of the game now and what's become of it? Yeah, oh, do you know, I think it's so sad because she sadly passed away um, in 1967 and I think the open era is from 1968. So she literally missed it by one year, which is, which is really sad. But um, I... I think she she would be she would be really pleased. Um, I, I I think, as I said, she she was she was quite a how can I say? I feel that she was a quiet pioneer. I don't think she she made a a big a big fuss about things. She just got on with things. But she she her ideas certainly about the professionalization of the sport and the amateur status of, of tennis at the time were, were definitely uh, uh, ahead of, 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 of her time. And, and she mentions it actually um, at several moments during her book. It's not just one occasion when it comes up. It, 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 it comes up at several, several times, even when she's talking, if I remember correctly, even when she's talking about um, Suzanne Longlen. Uh, she talks about Suzanne's parents, who who used to say in French, "Qu'est-ce qu'on lui propose?" So basically, what's in it for her? They knew very well at the time that that, that players were amateur and they couldn't um, technically be paid, but they always tried to find ways around it. You know, what 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 could uh, in, in maybe in a form of sponsorship? What dress could she have? What car could she have? What what this? You know, and and. And you can feel that, that 
Nora understands that. So I think, you know, fast forward all these years, I think she would have been really happy about the, the open era starting in 1968. Um, I feel also that she would have been um, a champion for equal pay between male and female players, which in, has only become a reality, let's say, relatively recently. I'm not sure what she would make of female tennis. <laughs> really? How, how so? Well, it's just that right at the end of the book, you know, she, again, we, we have to take this all in, in, in context. She was writing this in 1947. But you, you, do, you do get the feeling that she's mulling over those 25 years that she's been there, all the changes she, she has seen. Um, and when she goes back in 1946, this time as a spectator, and sees the new wave of, of American female players coming over, um, playing in short little skirts, uh, and whose whose style, even at the time, to her seems very masculine. You know, so it's 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 it's, it's very serious. It's very powerful. Um, I'm just I just wonder what she would what she would make of the of the ladies' game today, particularly as even at Wimbledon now, we have less and well less and less of the serve volley game that was that is was so characteristic of, of, of play on grass for longer baseline rallies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny you should mention that epilogue because I found that quite an interesting chapter because it is, it's quite ambiguous in its tone, isn't it? It's almost wistful, almost a little kind of sceptical, like you say. Do you think the split from Wimbledon coloured tennis for Nora? Do you think it kind of tainted Wimbledon and the magic or...? I know. I, I hope not. I mean, I mean, as I said, I, I, I think she was disappointed, slightly disappointed with how things turned out. But I, I don't think that would change the way how she, you know, change how she feels uh, about, about the game. I, I, I don't necessarily see uh, her epilogue as, as negative or too ambiguous. I think she's using it as a way just to ask herself lots of questions and, and things that have happened over the years and just trying to, she's trying to tie her loose ends together whilst also leaving questions open for, for, for the future and how, how, things, how things will evolve. Is, is, does that make sense or is that a bit No, 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 that's totally, I think that's true. <laughs> she's, always, she's always thinking in terms of kind of crossroads, isn't she? I think that's what's yeah. so interesting. Like you say, she started a career at a crossroads and yes. then she finishes it as a spectator after the Second World War at another, doesn't she? Another crossroads, yes, yeah. exactly. See, it's interesting to think as well that a lot of the players just before World War II had turned professional almost immediately, hadn't they? It was starting to speed up. So like Bobby Riggs yes. and uh, Alice yes. Marshall, they'd, they'd, they'd won one championships and they'd, yeah. they'd gone, hadn't they? Well, the, the thing is, is that I, I think um, so many players were torn between the, the prestige of, of playing for these Grand Slam tournaments, but knowing that they, they had to earn a living. And what was really weird is, is that everybody around them was making money off their victory, but the actual players themselves weren't making any money. And I mean, that's what Fred, Fred Perry was saying in the, in, in, in the 1930s. Mm. And she, as we've already said, totally supported that view. We should just mention that um, 
So Stacey Allister has also this summer become the US Open's first female tournament director. And um, on Tuesday, Sally Bolton had her first meeting with the media and spoke about being a woman in this, in this, uh, I guess, uh, on a committee at Wimbledon that was all male throughout Nora's time and has been very male-dominated throughout its history. Um, she said on Tuesday, I absolutely appreciate that my gender is a story. I do hope that I'll be judged on what I achieve in the time that I'm chief executive, but I also appreciate that it's important for women and girls to be able to see that it's possible to achieve senior roles in sport. I understand the importance of that. I'm very supportive of diversity in the boardroom and in sport generally. So, yeah, I mean, almost 100 years since Nora first worked at Wimbledon, it's incredible circle i know i I think this is amazing because when i first started working on this i had absolutely no idea that this was going to happen you know that 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 in 2020 wimbledon would get its first female ceo and more or less at the same time uh the us open would as well it's it's (laughs) to me it's 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 almost it's almost like a it's almost like a sign i mean i it is a shame that we've had to wait uh, so long, but I'm I'm not going to um, say that I'm I'm not happy <laughs> that it has fi- that it has finally happened. I think it's always it's always a bit difficult because, and I think what Sally Bolton said is 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 very important and, and very interesting. Of of course, the fact that she is a woman is going to be talked about. It's a story. Her her gender is a story. But she wants to be judged on on what she does. And that's that's the most important thing. And and I think that it was the same for Nora as well. So that for me is 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 an interesting parallel. It's also a very interesting parallel, the fact that as Sally assumes office, there is no championship this year. And it's kind of it was kind of like that for, for, for Nora as well. So for me, talking about my great aunt, writing this uh, TV drama series about her, it's an extremely interesting parallel and a bit of a coincidence that, that this is happening at the same time. There's still so much more work to do, isn't there, for Wimbledon in terms of its diversity. The, there's been a lot of attention recently about the, the board having no members of black, Asian or other ethnic minority groups. But I just wanted to ask you as a final question Sarah yes how did in this kind of Wimbledon story and Nora story what was the crossover there how did Wimbledon shape Nora and how did Nora shape Wimbledon do you feel I'm I'm not I'm I'm not sure if if it's I don't know if it's possible to um to to separate to separate the two um because I think probably both had an effect on each other. Do, do, do you see what I mean? Mm. Um, I, I think the fact, I think Wimbledon, the fact that Nora worked there, shaped her into, probably into the woman that she became. As I was saying earlier on, you know, she arrived there. She was, she was a young girl. Um, as I said, she came from a, 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 a good family, but she, 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 worked, she worked her way up she worked very hard and and became known for what she did. But Wimbledon was that arena in which she worked that enabled her to do that. Conversely, 
I think because she was a, 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 a woman working in, in this man's world, she was not, I don't know if it was always possible, but she was able maybe to put her um, female, <laughs> female touch, leave, leave her, her, her impression uh, on things. Does, does, that, does that make sense? Totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you say, they, they were kind of joined at the hip where they were 25 I years. think so, yes, yeah. I yeah. mean, she might, she might have had some regrets because, as I said, she, she worked very hard for, for Wimbledon and just from reading between the lines and talking to family members, I think, I think there were times when she regretted not always having time for her family um, her, her mother, so my, my great-grandmother um, sadly passed away in the, in the 1930s from, from cancer. And it was Brenda, her sister, who, who looked after her mum in the final stages. And I get the feeling that Nora wished she had been able to spend more time with her, but she was very, you know, she was very taken with her, well, she was very busy with her job at, at, at Wimbledon. Right at the beginning of the book, um, when Dudley Larkham calls Nora to offer her the job, he, he does say to her, you know, given this love affair of yours with Wimbledon, I was wondering if you'd like to come and give us a hand. And I think maybe that, that is the way to, to sum it up at the end, the, the love affair that she had with Wimbledon. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> what, what are your next plans for the, for the series and in your own career at the moment generally, I guess? Well, the plans, the plans for the series, I mean, the, well, it's, it's kind of the same for my, for my own, own career. Um, everything has been slowed down by, <laughs> by, by our friend COVID. Um, we have been in touch with some big production companies um, and everybody is very taken with this idea. And I can tell that they are very interested. But we have yet to find the production company that wants to take the full thing on board. It's, ob it's a big, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a large scale series. And so we need, we just need to find the, the right company to, to take it on. But so far, what has been good is that I have been able to get it to in front of, let's say, some big players in, 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 in the TV production world, which is already a first for me because I, I come, I'm a singer and an actress, but I come more from the, the theatre world. And so I, I don't have so much experience in TV and writing for TV. So sometimes it's just really difficult as you can imagine, just getting your foot through the door. But when I believe in something, when I think something is good enough, I, I will really, maybe I'm a bit like Nora, you know, I'll, I'll really do my best to, to, to try and make it happen. What, what's a bit of a shame is that literally just before lockdown, because we, we have uh, had some uh, leads in Hollywood as well, in, in, in Los Angeles. And so we were going to have some important meetings and of course those meetings fell by the wayside because of the pandemic and it's just been you know it's a bit more difficult to to get to kick start things um off to you know to get things going again what is really good is that um we have been having a bit of publicity recently because people have been made aware of the story and what is very reassuring to me is that as soon as people 
hear about this story and read a little about read a little bit about it they're very very interested and and you know like you very nicely straight away you want to speak to me to find out more so i'm i'm hoping that that all of this will just help drive us forward give us even more credibility even more clout uh, to to get something off the ground whilst i'm talking about all of this i because sometimes i don't always get the time to i would just really like to mention my uh, script uh, writer and fellow uh, story creator who is called Sarah Drew. She is wonderful. As soon as I told her about this, she thought it was excellent and wanted to come on board and, and help write the, uh, uh, the, well, get the documents ready and write the pilot script. So, so I'm, I'm seriously grateful to her for believing in this and um and she's a very talented girl and i i know we can do this together and um through sarah i have met a director called jamie patterson who also basically even though he's a friend of sarah's i don't think he would have accepted just because they're friends we 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 sent him all the documents and he read the pilot script and he said this is brilliant you know i also happen to be a tennis fan but this is a great pilot script so I want to help you try and get this off the ground so at the moment the three of us are, are working together to um as I said to <laughs> to get this series happening um particularly sorry this is the last thing I'll say because no, it is well it's a, it, it's the centenary of of uh, the move to Church Road the current site in 2022 so I feel this is the perfect time to have this this series, uh, it's also the centenary next year, towards the end of 20, 2021, when Nora first goes to work there. So for me, it's a highly uh, symbolic time, and I just think that um, you know everybody. You know, there are loads of tennis fans, but even if you're not a tennis fan, everybody loves Wimbledon. It's such a it's such a global thing. People get so worked up about it, and 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 with this series, it really gives information to people about how the tournament transitioned from, as you said at the beginning, this kind of slightly cozy vicarage party style summer party to the, the the modern tournament it's become and i think a lot of people don't realize exactly what happened so so all of this within nora's story will shine a light and and, and i'm sure people will be interested in it no we're, we're, we definitely are sarah and thank, <laughs> thank you thank you enough for sharing a very special wimbledon story with us today and we wish you all the best you're very welcome thank you very much thank you for having me